oh, I was going to ask a question of you all, and here it is. Here's the question. Have you ever experienced stepping into something that you expected to be terrible, and then actually it was wonderful? So I want you to ponder for a moment. Maybe that was in this past year or longer ago than that. Stepping into something that you thought was going to be terrible, and it was actually wonderful. The, the thing that came to my mind when I thought about this was Brussels sprouts. And I mean, it sounds kind of strange. I was an incredibly picky eater growing up. I, I mean, much of my life, I have, I have avoided, successfully avoided Brussels sprouts. They look terrible. They, they smell bad. I, so I've avoided them. And, and then there was one particular occasion where my wife, who is a fantastic cook, decides to cook roasted Brussels sprouts um, because we're trying to, you know, broaden our kids' food horizons and, and raise them uh, to, to like different kinds of food. So she serves roasted Brussels sprouts. And, and wanting to be a father and set a good example for my children, I, I figure, well, I'm, I'm going to need to eat these Brussels sprouts, but I don't want to. And loving my wife and understanding that she's a fabulous cook, I, I want to enjoy the gift that she's giving us in these roasted Brussels sprouts, um, but I didn't want to. But sure enough, I tasted the roasted Brussels sprouts, and let me tell you, they were absolutely delicious. In that moment, I could not remember ever enjoying a vegetable more than I was enjoying those roast, roasted Brussels sprouts. So kids, I hope you're hearing me on this. <laughs> roasted Brussels sprouts, better than you think. So in a strange way, this is kind of like, well, I should say, confessing your sin to God is kind of like that. It may sound like a strange comparison as we start, but we're going to look into Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, David articulates what, what I would explain as the joy of confession. So let's look at Psalm 32, and we're going to start just with verses 1 and 2. We're going to try that out. How's that sound? Oh, yes, I'm free. Okay, um, so Psalm 32, we'll, we'll read the whole chapter, but we'll just start with verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Blessed are the forgiven. So think with me, what is it like to be clean, free, without any looming um, burden or debt that is on you? What, what would that feel like? I was trying to imagine some scenarios, thinking just a few weeks ago for a high school student who just finished their last exam, and, and it's kind of like how they feel as they finish their last exam and they enter two weeks of Christmas vacation, right? Free, clean, without a burden. It's kind of like the, the college student who finishes their degree and they have a few weeks before they start their new job, they, they free, feel free, without a burden. It's kind of like entering a Sabbath day that you're truly going to keep as a day of rest. It's kind of like stepping out onto the beach at the beginning of a week of vacation. 
It's kind of like receiving the news that you are cancer-free. Or it's kind of like someone paying off, receiving the news that someone has paid off your medical bill or your college debt. What would it feel like to feel free and clean and without any looming burden or debt? The opening verses of this psalm have in view the person who can stand clean and burden-free before a holy God. Can you even imagine that? All wrongdoing forgiven. All sins are covered. The Lord is counting nothing against you. There are no lies that you're hiding from anyone. And you are welcomed in to the loving presence of the living God. Can you even imagine that? For those of us who understand ourselves to have rebelled and to be rebelling against our maker, this is really what we long for, to stand before our maker forgiven, clean, and debt-free. In these next two verses, David, the psalmist here, he identifies the obstacle to that experience, the obstacle to the experience of being this blessed, forgiven person. So let's look at verses 3 through 4 in Psalm 32 to read, to learn what is this obstacle to receiving this forgiveness. And David writes this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I love that descriptive language. When he kept silent, that is, silent from confessing his sins, silent from acknowledging his wrongdoing. When he kept silent, he was dying on the inside. Through his groaning all day long, it goes on, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. Picture walking around in life with this heavy burden. That We, we know that heavy burden. Your, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You think about... Um, uh, you know, on a hot summer day, you're enjoying air conditioning and you walk out into the heat and you can barely breathe um, and, and your strength is sapped. Um, you think about going on a long run and when you finish, your legs feel wobbly or, or, or an intense workout and when you're done, your, your forearms are burning and your hands can, can barely even grip the steering wheel to drive yourself home. Your strength is sapped. So this is how David is describing, this is how he feels when he keeps silent, when he doesn't acknowledge his sin. So the obstacle to receiving forgiveness is keeping silent regarding confession. And we can think about how we do this in, in regards to as we register um, our wrongdoing, what do we um, naturally do? We hide it, or we rationalize it, or we try to distract ourselves from it. And this is some of King David's experience as he's writing this psalm. He, um, we think about his wrongdoing with Bathsheba, and what did he do after that? But he tried to hide it. And how did that go? It was this domino effect that went horribly. 
I imagine there were many ways in which he, he in that process, tried to rationalize his wrongdoing as to why it wasn't as bad as some might think. Or, um, and then I imagine, as well as rationalizing it, he was trying to distract himself with the other kingly privileges and the rest of what he could do in life. And none of that worked. He was absolutely miserable. He says his, he felt as if his bones were wasting away. He was groaning all day long. Have you ever felt that way? As you recognize your wrongdoing and you hide it or you rationalize it or you distract yourself from it. I can think about um, a time when I, um, I lied to make myself look better. And the next day I'm driving in the car and the Holy Spirit just reminds me, Brentley, you, you lied in that conversation. And, and my first thought is, you know what, no one's ever going to realize it. It's, it's this little thing, and it'll, just, it'll go by. Um, so I'm just not going to say anything to anybody. I'm just going to hide it. And, and it's just, the Holy Spirit didn't let me go. It, it's still, the Holy Spirit was reminding me, no, that's, that's wrong. So, so I tried to rationalize it and say, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's a small thing. It's not hurting anyone. Um, that didn't work. So I try to distract myself from it. You know, I've got a lot of other things today. I've got all these errands to run and other things to do. And, and that didn't work. The Holy Spirit was reminding me, Brentley, you've sinned before the Lord. So or I can think about times when, perhaps you can think of a time when someone has pointed out a wrong that you have done. So you can't hide it, right? Because they're pointing it out. So, so your first thought is to rationalize it, to, to try to explain, you know, how, well, I think, don't, don't think about the bad that I've done. Think of all the good that I've done. Or let's not focus on the wrongdoing that I've done. Let's, let's talk about the more significant wrongdoing that you have done. And, and we try to just distract things or rationalize it. And it doesn't work, Right? To hide, to rationalize, to distract, this actually hardens our hearts. It zaps our energy. It depletes our patience. And we find that we become grumpy, bitter, dis, uh, defensive, and impatient people. And then we cover all of that up with pride, this pitiful kind of pride that is really a panic response to our own known failure. So we put on this front that says, I'm strong, I'm good, I'm competent, yet we know we're weak, and we're not as good as we want others to think we are, and we're not as competent as we want others to think we are. When we refuse to confess, we are hardening and dying on the inside. This is why many non-believers are walking around spiritually dead. And this is why many believers are walking around spiritually sick, very sick, because it's our failure to own and address our own rebellion against our maker. Now, on one hand, it's, it's easy to say in general that, you know what, I'm not perfect, I, I mess up all the time. Yet it's a lot more difficult to say very specifically Maggie, I'm sorry, I was selfish. Ashley, I'm sorry, I lost my patience. Aaron, I'm sorry that what I did was motivated by pride. 
it's a lot more difficult for us to own a specific wrongdoing that we've done. So the question is, have you owned any specific wrongdoing with the Lord or with others recently? Or are you keeping silent in regards to that? I, I'm fascinated in, as David writes the psalm, um, after this verse 4, there is this little word, sila, S-E-L-A-H, And the interesting thing about this little word, scholars aren't completely clear about how to translate this Hebrew word. So there's some confusion about what it means, but there's there's one or there's many scholars come to the conclusion eventually that this word is simply, it designates a rest or a pause for reflection. So when you see this word in a psalm, it's, it's a trigger to, to rest and pause for reflection. So here, to pause and reflect, have you owned any specific wrongdoing with the Lord or others recently? We move to the next verse in Psalm 32, verses 5 through 7. And we read this. David writes, Then... Then I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let the faithful pray to you while they may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. All right, this is like David biting into Amanda's roasted Brussels sprouts, all right? He, he steps in and he confesses to the Lord. He expected it to be a difficult thing, a terrible thing. And what happens? It's incredible. He's met with the open arms of God's grace and forgiveness. This is a completely different picture than what we often um, imagine or experience when it comes to confession. What we imagine or experience is we go before someone and confess, and we get, how dare you do that? Didn't I tell you not to? Did you not listen to what I had said? Or we get these eyes burning and looking at us with this stare of, it doesn't matter that you're confessing because what you did was so horrible. And and this is what we experience or expect in response to our confession. But it's, it's not how God responds. When I think about it, the truth is, this is actually, it's a pretty reasonable human response, right? But it's not how God responds. He responds in such a way that that causes David to say in verse 7. So picture, this is David goes before a holy, perfect God. He confesses his wrongdoing, and God responds to his wrongdoing in such a way that David says, God, you are my hiding place. He feels safe and protected with this God that he's just admitted he's rebelled against. Says, God, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. We read in 1 John 1, 9, 
If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You could read also in what's that next page? Psalm 103, 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. When I confess my wrongdoing to an all-powerful, all-knowing God, it never surprises him. In fact, I learn that he has taken this into account and he has planned elaborately to pay the debt that I owe. So, so hear that. When I confess to the Lord, I learn that this doesn't surprise him. He knew about this long ago, and he's planned ahead of time for a way to forgive me, for a way to pay my debt. Receiving forgiveness is not about waiting for God to extend it. It's about realizing you need it. Because as soon as I realize I need forgiveness, then then I realize that my Heavenly Father, He's planned long before that moment. He's been standing there offering it to me all along. Receiving forgiveness is not about waiting for God to extend it. It's about realizing you need it. So blessed is the man who is forgiven. And the obstacle that stands in my way to receiving this forgiveness is silence in regards to my wrongdoing. The path to receiving this forgiveness is confession. And then in these last verses, verses 8 through 10, we receive some instruction from God that David writes down. This is um, what, what God speaks to him next after receiving, after extending, and David receives forgiveness. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. So I picture this instruction that God gives this gracious and loving counsel from the one you've wronged. So often when you've wronged someone, they're feeling pretty, um, pretty vulnerable and hurt, and they might lash out at you, um, but that's not the way God responds. He's not... He's not threatened by us in any way. As we confess our sins to God, he graciously opens up and shares his loving counsel with us. Verse 9 says, Do not be like God's instruction to us. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. So God is referring to this, um, you know, don't, don't be like, um, you can have relationship with me. You're, you're not like an animal who can't understand instruction fully, who doesn't understand the relationship, who needs to be just forced to go one way or the other. This, I invite you into relationship. I invite you to understand my instruction and to choose to trust me. So as we confess, the Lord invites us into a relationship and a choice to trust him and follow him. 
Then David responds in verse 10. He said, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. So it's this idea, the woes of the wicked, the, the silence of, of my refusing to confess or not, not um, being willing to confess, that is a death inside of me. Woe to the wicked, woe to the person who will not confess his wrongdoing. And then he says, confessing leads to being surrounded with the loving arms of a heavenly father. We hear in this last verse, uh, verse 11, David says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. That is, those of you who have right standing with God, you have confessed your sin, you've received complete forgiveness, you are now standing debt-free before the holy God. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So we're upright in heart, not because we've become perfect all of a sudden, but because we acknowledge our wrongdoing before the Lord. We are upright in heart. Our heart has the right posture before our God. David acknowledges this reality that confession leads to receiving forgiveness and acceptance and direction and protection from the Lord. These are all a part of his response, and it's fabulous. So the question is, what do we do with this? This teaching, this, this pressing towards the joy of confession. So first I would say we, we should be quick to confess. Second, we, we should be ready to extend forgiveness. And this, this gets into a whole other difficult and important discussion, but, but it's good for me to just ponder if, if the Lord if the way the Lord extends forgiveness is this, it's not he waits for me to say I'm sorry, then he ponders and, and heals and collects some things and collects himself and then decides to forgive me. But remember, he has prepared elaborately ahead of time to pay our debt, to forgive us, so that when we come and confess before him, how does he respond to us? With open arms, and he surrounds us with love, and he brings us right in. What does that suggest about the way I should extend forgiveness to others? That's a challenging example and a challenging thought. So third, I think we should be quick to confess, be ready to extend forgiveness, and third, and finally, to be free to rejoice. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's how we stand before the Lord as we confess, as we own, as we acknowledge our wrongdoing. He has made a way for us to then become his radiant bride without blemish. I want to pause just and have us um, interact with the Lord for a moment before we close and sing a song of response, acknowledging the goodness of God. So as I 
close and just have a moment of silence, I, I want you to have a conversation with the Lord and just um, talk to the Lord about how you want to respond to this encouragement to step into the joy of confession. Mm-hmm.